I'm going to speak to you this morning on the, the most famous verse in the Bible. Uh, this man came to me, he said, I've had a strange experience. I've not been to church except once for 40 years. I had some contact with Christianity when I was young. I got invited to a church. I couldn't really turn it down. I found myself in a church service and I was afraid. Now, he's a big man. He's boarding on 20 stone and he's not much afraid of anything. I said, whatever made you afraid of going to a church? He said, I was afraid that the pastor would asked me to find somewhere in the Bible which I couldn't find. But when he went in, when I went in, he said, I saw that the reading was from John chapter 3, and I knew where John's gospel was. I even know a verse, he said, from John's gospel. I said, which one's that? John chapter 3, verse 16, he said. It's the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How many words is that? How many words in the most famous verse in the Bible? Someone Googling it now. <laughs> 25. 25 words. Now in 1868, in November, Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, President of the USA, gave his Gettysburg Address. It was the opening of a cemetery at the end of the terrible Civil War. They invited a special orator to, to speak, and then as a last, last resort, they thought, well, it, I suppose we ought to ask the President to say something. A man spoke for over an hour. Nobody today remembers anything he said. Abraham Lincoln stood up. He spoke 272 words. And they transformed political thinking and shaped the whole of North America for these last 151 years and have influenced at least 100 or more other democracies on this planet. 272 words. What an influence they've had. It's nothing. Nothing compared with 25 words from John chapter 3, verse 16. So what's the verse about? If you've got John 3, 16 in your head, you don't need to look it up. Um, but if you haven't got it in your head, don't, don't be ashamed to look it up. What's John 3, 16 about? For God, G, G, for God so loved the world that he gave his only G-O. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. G-O-S. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish. G-O-S-P. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting G-O-S-P-E. Life, G-O-S-P-E-L, spells gospel, which is an old word, old Saxon word, which means the best news possible. John 3.16 is the gospel. Now, when we say gospel with a big G, we mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four books of the Bible. 
But when we say gospel with a small g, we mean that great news, that good news, that best possible news, which is taught in every book in the Bible. And John 3.16 gathers it all together into one easy sentence of 25 words that nobody, but nobody should get it wrong. What's it about then? Look at the end of the verse. What are the last two words? Everlasting life. The BBC reporter last week was saying how obesity is threatening the health of British people. How the mortality rate of people is going up unnecessarily. So that's a strange thing to say. He went on with his report and then he says, but of course there's something we've got to remember, he said. Whatever nation you belong to, the mortality rate is actually 100%. That was the BBC. It's not often they tell the truth, is it? <laughs> but this is about everlasting life. That's the gospel. It's about everlasting life. Sometimes people say to me, you're a preacher, aren't you? I say, yes. What do you preach? I say, well, I preach the gospel. Yes, we, but it's not relevant. There's no message which is more relevant. The mortality rate of British people, or whatever nation you belong to, is 100%. So a message which talks about everlasting life must be the most relevant message of all, surely. Everlasting life. Let's talk, it, let's talk about that for a little while. What's the need for this life? There it is. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Two or three years ago, you read it probably, a man was walking along one of our coastal paths then he saw something over there and he thought, that looks interesting. So he walked across a field of grass, very clumpy grass, and as he got towards what he wanted to see, he fell into a disused well. Nobody knew it was there. It was hidden by the clumpy grass. Down the well he went, fortunately, although it was 30 feet deep. It was soft at the bottom. He broke no bones. He lost no consciousness, but he was 30 feet down in a forgotten well that nobody knew about, with no way of getting out. What do you think he thought about? Do you think he thought about missing the next episode of Killing Eve? <laughs> do you think he thought about the fact that he's, he hasn't got the latest mobile phone? What did he, what did he think about? He had one thought in his mind. How do I get out of here? And why? Because he knew that just by doing nothing, he would perish. When you're in that sort of situation, what do you have to do to perish? 
Nothing. I don't know most of you here, but you need to know this. To perish, you have to do nothing. You just have to stay as you are. You didn't make this world, did you? Is it here? Yes. You didn't make it. It's not always been here. It didn't make itself. So where did it come from? God made the world. God made you. And God gave to his world two simple rules. Love me with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Just love me. Rule number one. Rule number two. Love everybody else. Just like you love yourself. Love them. I haven't kept the rules. You haven't kept the rules. And God who is love, I've offended and he's eternal. So he's eternally offended. And he's infinite. So he's infinitely offended. I live with his life, in his world, with his rules, and I'm out of sorts left to myself. I'm out of sorts with God. The Bible calls it perishing. He's just, you know. He won't overlook it. What sort of punishment is required when you've offended an infinite God? An eternal God? Can it be anything less than an infinite punishment? An eternal punishment? The Bible calls it perishing. Perishing! But you're thinking about the man in the well. What happened to him? What would you do? He shouted. What's the point? Nobody knows this well's here. But it just happened that there was someone walking along the coastal path who thought, that looks interesting over there. I think I'll go and have a look at it. He left the coastal path and walked across a clumpy field and he could hear, help! And amazingly, amazingly, the man was rescued. He's alive today. But the gospel is about everlasting life. And the need for that life is that I'm perishing. Now, what's, who's the giver of this life, everlasting life? I don't have it, so who's the giver of it? Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What do you think about God? Let's go to your garden. In your garden's a little dog. Just a puppy. You've allowed it out now. But you leave it out a bit long and the night comes in and the puppy sees something he's never seen before. It's the moon. What do puppies do when they've got a sense of territory which they think is being invaded? They bark. The puppy barks at the moon. The puppy barks at the moon. The next night, he's out there again. He barks at the moon, but he notices it's a little bit smaller. 
The third night he goes out again and barks at the moon. And the moon's a bit smaller still. For 14 days he barks and the moon goes away. Isn't it a great, it's really successful, isn't it, this barking business? It just, it just goes away. Is it like that with you, with the thought of God? You don't actually like the thought of God. You don't like the thought of being answerable to someone who's not answerable to you. But you bark at it. And it goes away. But there's a problem with this story. The puppy goes out in the garden and there's no moon. Really pleased with himself. He can be happy now, can't he? Uh-uh. What's that little thing in the sky? And he barks at it, but it gets bigger. <laughs> Is that you? You bark at God and the thought goes away. And then you wake up in the night one night and there it is again. Or you have to go to a, a, a funeral one day, and there it is again. Or you meet someone at work, and there it is again. And you can't get rid of the thought of God. Why would you want to? This verse says he's the giver of everlasting life to those who are perishing. He's the giver but you don't believe in him, you say. I'm privileged to have met rather a lot of intelligent people in my life, but certainly the most intelligent is a man in Switzerland who I've met, who I know very well. His name is John Mark Bertu, um, if you want to pronounce it in an English way. He's an ethicist, he's a historian, he's a philosopher, and he's a theologian, but he wasn't always... He was a professor in the Sorbonne in Paris, a man with a very bad temper, who was completely committed to ridiculing the Christian faith. He lived in open immorality, but one day he saw his latest partner to the station. She got on the train, he waved her goodbye, he turned round and walked down the platform. He says, at that moment, I knew that God existed. I said, what did you do next? I stood on the platform, he said, and I said this. God, right now, I don't believe in you. But if you are there, you will have to find me. Because left to myself, I could never find you. What happened next? I went back to my flat, he said. And suddenly, out of nowhere, I wanted to read the Bible. Where did you begin? Where do you begin any, any book, he said. I began at the beginning. He read Genesis, quite interesting. He read Exodus. Got a bit difficult towards the end because of all those rules. And then he got eventually into Leviticus. Have you ever read Leviticus? It's really hard, isn't it? Genesis, 
And then he said, when I read these rules, and I thought how balanced they were, and how comprehensive, and how fair, and how wise, I thought to myself, no human could ever have come up with that. There's got to be a divine origin. So I kept reading the Bible, he said, and then it started talking about this person who was going to come. And then I read about Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection. He'd become a Christian long before he finished the Bible. It's God who gives everlasting life. We need it because we're perishing. So that's the, re the need for this life and that's the giver of this life. And the source of this life is God's love. Aren't you glad that the person who made the world and rules the world and will judge the world is love? And aren't you glad that the God who is love has told the world to love? Aren't you glad that the whole universe is not in the hands of some tyrant? God is love, says the Bible. He's always loved because, you see, he's three and he's one. That's a mystery. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they love each other and they receive love from each other. And the whole electronics, if I can use that word, the whole pulse of the Godhead, all that vibrates through the Godhead, which is in fact eternal life, is love. And the gospel is about love. You Christians, you're a bigoted lot, people tell me. Are we? No. We disagree with a lot. But We've been taught by God who is love to love every man and woman and child who's on our pathway. And if you're a Christian at all, you do. Overtly. Affectionately. Treat other people. The need for this life is our perishing, the giver of this life is God, the source of this life is his love, the channel of this life is his son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God has to use father-son pictures just to get across to our poor minds something of the relationships that exist in the mystery of the interior of his being. There is an eternal being who is, the Bible calls the son, and another eternal being whom the Bible calls the Father, and another eternal being who the Bible calls the Holy Spirit, but there are not three gods. It's the Son who came into the world. It's the Son who lived here. It's the Son who was conceived in Mary's womb and took on a human nature with human emotions and human thoughts and a human soul. It's a Son who was a little boy in Nazareth's school. It's, a, it's the son who labored in the carpenter's shop. It's the son who taught through Galilee and did his wonderful miracles. It's the son who died on the cross. It's the eternal son who was buried in the tomb. 
It's the Son who rose from the dead. It's the Son who lived perfectly here. Who else could save you? Only him, says the Bible. If you're a sinner, you need someone sinless to save you. If there's a punishment for sin, but somebody else is going to take it, it's got to be someone who has no sin of their own. It's the Son. And the greatest display of the love of God is not nature. The greatest display and the proof of the love of God is that he sent his Son into the world. He gave him to us to die for us. The cost was his death. Can you imagine what that means? I can't. He has life in himself. He dies. Eternal life is what vibrates round the Trinity. He dies. He's holy. He carries sin. He's majestic and the angels worship him. He's despised and spat on. Shamed. That's the cost. So there's the need for this life and the giver of it and the source of it and the channel of it and the cost of it. And who are the beneficiaries? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, that's not everybody. Is it? When the Bible says whoever, it means whoever. But by using the word whoever, it's not everybody. Why? Because some people are going to ignore the message. Some people are going to reject the message. Some people are going to distort the message. But whoever receives the message, whoever fulfills the one condition, whoever comes, they are the beneficiaries. Whoever. And the Bible doesn't say you've got to be extra good or a particular sort of person, or a particular nationality, or a particular ethnicity. The message is offered to whoever. Is that you? Would whoever fit you? Fits me. Anybody here feel left out when I say whoever? Whoever you are, come and have a cup of tea. Sounds good, doesn't it? It's not going to happen. But you know you're invited. Whoever says this great, great verse, and nobody, nobody can say, and therefore you must not say, I'm shut out. You're not. But whether you walk through the door, that's another question. But you're not shut out. The door's open for you. So what's the condition? 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him. I believe in him, sometimes we say. I believe in her. What you mean is you've got confidence in them. But the Bible goes further than that. A woman comes home from the specialist with the worst possible news. But she's peaceful and untroubled. She's got a very, very, very rare condition. But she's not perturbed. Why? Because for the last 20 years, her husband, who's a very clever medical specialist, has actually worked on this particular problem. And she knows that, notice, knows. And she believes that what's worked for hundreds of others will work for her. She knows, she believes. And so she entrusts herself to the person she loves. She knows, believes, entrusts. By the end of this sermon, you will know the gospel message. Some of you believe it. But everlasting life is for those who entrust themselves to the Christ who loves and who now they're beginning to love. And what's the nature of this life? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In the previous verse, it's eternal life. Between North Wales and the great port of Liverpool lies a strip of land called Wirral. On one side is the Avon de Vardwe, the River Dee. On the other side is the Mersey. And there is Wirral. On the Wirral is a place called Thurstaston, an old Viking settlement. And in Thurstaston is a great rock bigger than this chapel. I remember climbing on that rock when I was about 10, 11, and lying on the top in the evening, putting my hands behind my neck, and thinking, if I go up, and up, and up, and up, and up, there's no end to it. And I began to be a bit frightened. 
And then I thought, oh, maybe I'll just hit the end. And then I thought, yes, but the first question I'm going to ask is, what's on the other side? Up, and up, and up. There's no end. If it wasn't for gravity, we'd be flying off into eternity. It's frightening, isn't it? There's no end. That's the life that Jesus offers. Ionon, everlasting, eternal. There's no end. Is that good news? Let us pray. Lord, we're frightened by the thought of eternity. It's so different from all that we've seen in our mortal lives. What a great word you've given to us in the gospel message that you give to men and women who trust the Savior. A life which is your own life. That life which vibrates in the interior of your being, that everlasting, endless, measureless, limitless life. Lord, bring home to our hearts by that speaking voice the reality and truth of all this. Help us to receive it by faith, to love it in our hearts, and to entrust ourselves entirely to what you've said. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.